everyone on Walter, Walt, I'm an alcoholic and an addict, all sorts of good stuff. Um, you know, I'm glad I'm opening for Rebecca, who I know. Hi, Rebecca. And because uh, I, I feel like that band who had one hit in 1992 and, and she's the Rolling Stones. So there's like no pressure on me. <laughs> you know, um, you know, uh, my sobriety day is Valentine's Day 2017. Uh, and, um, you know, I didn't get sober until I was after over 50. So I had a long <laughs> this long period. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through that because uh, uh, let's just say this, this. I always had a lot of, I have a lot of self-control and that is not, I'm not bragging because that was the thing that allowed me to just keep going out there because I kept thinking like that list that was read, you know, I always had some new way to manage it. You know, I used to, I had notebooks full of days I drank and didn't drink. I had a chalkboard where I would like, drink, didn't drink columns, you know, and as long as I would, I would set these ridiculous goals for myself, like, oh, if I don't drink one third of each month, then I'm not, it's not a problem. So I, I did all that for years and years and years and years. And um, so I, I want to jump just really up to like 2015, 2016, around that time I was, I was buying my business partner out and there was a lot of work around that. I had to work really hard. I had to, you know, save up money. There was a lot that had to happen. And I really put my nose to the grindstone to make it happen. And in about May of 2016, everything was finalized. It was done. And then within about a week after that, not even a week, you know, I went on this run. It was basically this 10-month run where I, I came this close to destroying it all, all of it. After all that work I had put in, um, and that, that combined with some other things um, is really what got me in the rooms to stay. Uh, uh, you know, I say to stay, though, I didn't really ever try to get sober before. Not really. I never really worked a program. I went to an AA meeting once or twice over the course of 20, 30 years, but never seriously considered it as viable option for me. Um, and, uh, you know, in that run, I just, you know, I... I was drinking like crazy. Of course, I picked up all sorts, you know, drugs are part of my story. So I picked up all sorts of drugs, the, the usual stuff that I would take. I acted out sexually. I ended up going to the doctor for all sorts of things I needed to get taken care of because of that. I mean, I just didn't take care of myself in any way, shape or form. And, um, you know, there was this whole, you know, I look back on it now and I really see all the self-sabotage I was engaged in. It was almost as if I was saying, you know, you don't deserve to have anything good, so you may as well just destroy it. You know, that was what was going on with me. So I, um, but that year, 2016, the end of 2016, I, you know, I was feeling isolated and alone, and I decided to go visit my family. I wanted to really connect with them was my idea. So I drove to uh, visit, uh, my dad's still alive, my mom's gone, but, um, uh, and that's in New Mexico. And, uh, and I was determined, I was like, okay, I'm going to stay sober before I leave. I'm not going to do anything. You know, the night before I left, I was out, out till four o'clock in the morning doing God knows what. And, and still got in the car the next morning at seven to drive first to Palm Springs. You know, still drunk, still high, still a mess. And, you know, that, that was a good, I mean, it was a great start to what was about, was going to happen. You know, so I get there and, you know, I'm on edge, I'm miserable, I'm irritable, I'm trying not to drink, I'm crashing from all the drugs, I'm showing up in people's lives, like, here, I'm here, now change, 
now give me the Christmas I'm expecting. Give me what I want. I'm here. These people have lives of their own, right? So they have kids. They have families. You know, they. Yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm just crashing in there, and not. I'm not even thinking of them really. Um, I'm thinking of them in the context of how they can serve me. Um, and it all came to a head as on my way back, I went, I drove up to Denver where I have a niece and her husband. And she used to live here. Uh, she met her husband here and they moved to Denver when they wanted to have kids. And she was pregnant. She was like six months pregnant with her first kid. Uh, was there around New Year's. And the idea was, I was staying in their house and the idea was, Okay, well, I'm going to hang out here on New Year's Eve since she can't drink. She's pregnant. We're just going to have a nice, quiet New Year's at their house together. Well, the night before that, everyone goes to bed. And, of course, I just, I can't, I can't stay. I can't do it. I disappear. I just leave their house. I disappear. I'm off in downtown Denver again, drinking, drugging, you name it. And, you know, I'm just gone for a few days. Uh, and I finally show back up. and. I don't know, you know, there's not one thing that got, is going to say, I want to say got me sober, but I can tell you the look on my niece's face, this, you know, I, you know, love her to death. The look on her face of just sheer, she was so hurt by how I had treated her and her and them. And she was so disappointed in me. Um, she didn't really get angry. She just, it, it was, and I, and I took a I, just, I came in just expecting to be able to charm my way out of it, right? Just brush it off. Ha ha, well, you know, da da da. And, uh, and her, of course, her husband had a completely different reaction. He was pissed. He was pissed. And uh, just told me, he was like, you know, she's my, my wife is pregnant with our first child, and you treat her like this. You know, you need to get the F out of our house. And what could I say? <laughs> um, what could I say? But, you know, of course, I apologize, all the usual stuff. But, um, and they're like, you need to leave in the morning. And I was like, well, I, I'm just going to leave now. And, and if I'm honest, part of the reason I wanted to leave right then was I just wanted to go out and, and drink and use more. Like, I was in so, I was like, I can't, I can't stay here tonight now. I need to just get out of here, get a hotel and do what I want to do. Um, which is what I did. I left. I spent a couple more days doing that in Denver, and I eventually drove myself back here, a wreck. And that was what got me finally, finally, to really look at AA, um, NA, CMA, all, all of the A's. Um, and I reached out when I got back to the one one person I knew who was in the program. He lived in the city. He drove over the next that weekend, a Sunday morning meeting. It was in the cent old central office Sunday morning. My first meeting, he drove me there. He introduced me to three guys. He lived in the city, so he introduced me to these three guys who lived here. Who I'd never, I'd, I'd never met them. And these three guys, like literally and figuratively, they surrounded me, literally and figuratively, and held me up. They held me up. And... They told me, here's your new sponsor, here's where you're going. And I and for the first time in probably in my life, I just let go. I just let go. I just let go. And I said, I, I can't do this anymore. And I'd let these three men who I never met, I just put my trust in them and I let them hold me up. 
I let them tell me where I needed to go. I let them tell me what I needed to read, you know, how many meetings to go to. Um, they drag me to, we go to this meeting on this day and this meeting this day, and we go to fellowship on these days. And it's exactly what I needed. And, um, and I can tell you today that one, the one is still my sponsor. The other two are still really good friends. I'm going to the wedding of one of their, one of their weddings next month. Another one, we have lunch together every, every Wednesday, downtown Oakland. Um, and you know, that fellowship, that, um, two minutes. Thank you. That, um, that willingness to help a complete stranger. It, first off, it boggled my mind. I didn't understand why they were doing it at all. I had no idea. Uh, but I know, I remember sitting in the, anyone who used to go to the, the old, uh, central office meeting, um, they're just off Broadway. Uh, there was the responsibility statement up on the wall, the little, little board. And I sat there and I would sit there and I would just read it over and over when I was, you know, my mind was spinning, it was just spinning out of control. And, uh, it gave me solace and it, it helped me understand why they were doing what they were doing. Um, so, you know, fast forward, like I said, uh, four and a half years, um, I continue to work program. I go to five meetings, uh, a week starting to go to meetings in person now. Um, and I want to get back to this, to my family because I now go back and see my family every year for at least a month, if not more. I just spent two months visiting my dad. Um, I was there all of June and most of July. Uh, I show up and I, and I take the whole, the tenant of, of AA, right? Be of service, be of service. I don't go there expecting anything from my dad. I go to him and I, I show up. I'm like, what do you want to do? He's 86. He's in good health. But, and it's like, okay, you want to fix that car? You want to put in a new kitchen island? You want to build a patio? Whatever. Because it doesn't matter. I used to argue about that stuff with him. It doesn't matter. We're just spending time together. And I'm just being of service. And in being of service, I, for the first time, I have the best relationship with my dad I've ever had. And I never thought it would happen. Um, uh, we had coffee in the morning and spent time together and just spent, and, uh, you know, here's a crazy thing. I like my dad. I didn't think I liked him. He was my dad. I loved him, but I like my dad and I want to spend time with him. There's something I learned. And, and that niece, I, on my way back, I stopped in Denver. They now have two kids. I stayed at their house. I'm welcome back in their house. They trust me with their kids. Um, I get to experience and share their life again, you know, which when I thought I had lost that forever really tore me up, you know, so um, I look forward to seeing how my relationships with my family and other people grow. Um, because just in these four and a half years, just working the program and being willing to be, a, be humble and honest, all that has changed and grown, you know, and I'm working on building my relationships with some of my other siblings that have been. That's fine. Yeah. So um, I'm going to end right there and thank you all. And I look forward to hearing from uh, Rebecca. So thank you, everyone. Good evening, everyone, fellow alcoholics. My name's Rebecca, and I most definitely am an alcoholic. Um, thank you so much, Walter, for your lead, for drawing the curtains open for me, making it feel warm in here. I got really emotional listening to you and remembering you at the 9 a.m. meeting on Sundays. And I also got really emotional because 
you said that you knew me, you know who I am. And for this alcoholic human being, that is such a good feeling. You know, it's such a good feeling to be known. And I look in this meeting for the faces that I can see. Um, I know some of you, you know, but I know that if I see you again, I'll be like, oh, I know you. But I know you know what I'm talking about, right? You go someplace and somebody says, I know you. And um, that means a lot. And I feel like right now in this moment, Reminds me of the crossroads that I was on when I uh, became willing to get sober. When I admitted that I was powerless over alcohol or one of my moms handed me a card to the Olaf Recovery Services in San Francisco to the Skip Byron 30-Day Detox Program. And I was like, okay, yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm too chicken shit to kill myself, so I'll call. You know, um, and it reminds me of that moment because right now in this moment, I feel vulnerable and willing and open-minded and, you know, I'll be as honest as I'm capable of being at this point in my life, you know, only because I look back at what I think was honesty even a few years ago or my first year of sobriety and it was such a different version of the honesty that I know today. Um, it just feels more clear cut. And back then it was like very nuanced and gray, i.e. I was like manipulating the hell out of my own brain and others still. Um, but just to keep myself on track, uh, I have a sobriety date. It's my only sobriety date from substances. Um, and I say that just because I have many dates around other behaviors, but around alcohol and drugs, uh, my sobriety date is June 8th, 2006. And um, I just celebrated 15 years in ju this June, or we celebrated 15 years rather, I should say, all of us, because the only way that I did it was with you guys, with a higher power, with a sponsor, um, with all of my beloved uh, hindrances or character defects or shortcomings, as, as we call them, um, that keep me coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous. That and my pride and the fact that I don't want to die um, because the way that I used substances was very, as a high achiever. Um, I drank straight rum out of the bottle. I didn't go to bars. I didn't hang out with people. I just drank alone. I started early in the morning with like the first running of Democracy Now! at 6 a.m. And um, thank whatever higher powers I had at that time, I, um, I didn't discover, um, I didn't discover substances until like the last six months of my using. And I became completely addicted, like was on my hands and knees on the floor looking for 
white dots and bits, you know, and that happened immediately for me. Um, and I also didn't really like kick it hard with alcohol until I was older. I'm just like the women in the big book. I think we get like one designated little paragraph where it talks about how we are, um, we go from like, basically I'm paraphrasing here from like zero to a hundred in like three to five years, you know, we become completely demolished. Our lives do. And that was me. Um, by the end of my alcohol drinking, I think I started heavily at like maybe 29 and then by 33, it was a wrap. I was completely unemployable, completely unemployable, isolated, uh, you know, drinking every day, maybe taking a day off here and there to kind of like get it out of my system so that I could continue. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm really, really grateful for that, that there was no doubt, no in-between place, like no, uh, oh, you still had your car, you still had your house. Like I was housed because my parents had no clue what codependency was. And it's not like we're wealthy, you know, they were like scraping the barrel to pay my rent. Um, and, uh, there's nobody in my immediate family that has substance issues. Well, I found out after I got sober, right, that I have uncles and my grandfather on one side. And I'm like, why the hell didn't you guys tell me? You know, I know that I was not highly skilled at hiding my alcoholism. Um, I know that it was pretty obvious that there was something intense going on with me. But, you know, just like I am so capable of lying to myself and only seeing what I want to see, I know that others also do that, you know, and that a lot of times with pain and with suffering, it's like, I can't deal with that. Let me look the other way, you know, um, and it was really nobody else's responsibility but my own, um, and I'm just, I'm an alcoholic because I'm an alcoholic, period. Yes, I, I, I experienced um, some pretty severe trauma at a very young age. Um, and I know that, that what that did was my response to that at five years old, um, and I will say, you know, trigger warning if you want to mute yourself because I'm going to mention something right now about of a assaultive nature. So if you want to mute me for a moment, um, but it's important for me to talk about because it's part of my story. So I was sexually assaulted at age five. And I mentioned that because it's something that has taken me many, many years to accept and to look at. And through, um, you know, in sobriety, getting to do many rounds of sexual inventories in the fourth step and through a lot of outside help, I've really gotten to unpack and look at how that affected my life and how it still affects my life, how it um, affected my worldview. It didn't make me an alcoholic, but it definitely uh, was a spoke in my wheel that kept me going, you know? Um, 
And it definitely, my reaction to that was to, obviously, like anybody would, you know, we all come in with these brilliant coping mechanisms, right? Like, our brain is just trying to help us survive. Our bodies are just trying to help us survive. And they do so in the most brilliant ways that oftentimes, for us, right, for those of us that are alcoholics, um, you know, it has a fatal and progressive edge to it, you know? Um, and for me, uh, like I, like I said before, it happened really quickly. I had these other behaviors that I developed. I grew up, my response to getting sexually assaulted at age five was that I started pulling out my own hair and it wasn't until I was 18 years old and read an article in the paper that my mom showed me that I, that I knew what it was that, Oh, this is called trichotillomania. And it's now it's an impulsive, um, uh, what is it called? It used to be an OCD obsessive compulsive disorder. Now it's an impulse control disorder. So the DSM-5 has recategorized me. Um, but basically it was a way of coping for me, you know? And so I didn't really need substances because I had this other thing that helped me. It helped me when I felt, you know, was having any kind of feeling when I needed to disassociate. Um, and, it, and it kept me in a lot of ways really emotionally arrested like I didn't deal with a lot of stuff and I wouldn't let people get close and I dropped out of activities and passions that I had because it would mean like somebody else was going to comb my hair or somebody else was going to get close enough to me to say something to me um, and I didn't really um, you know kick off my romance with substances like I said until I was in my late 20s and that was because I decided that the hair was the problem like oh the hair's the problem so let me shave my head and then I won't have the problem anymore and so I experienced that and that was when I became that was when I needed something you know I really needed something then I was like oh my god there's nothing standing between me and the world and myself and that was too much you know so I started smoking cigarettes in a very clandestine way. My family at the time, they were like mad, weed heads, but cigarettes was really looked down upon. So just the fact that it was like this, like clandestine, I was just tobacco clandestine operative, smoking, chain smoking in my living room alone, you know. And that was all I needed was these few micro permissions and behaviors that, um, really led me to make more decisions that sort of chipped away at my self-worth and self-esteem um, to where who I thought I was, I wasn't that person anymore. And then I could become somebody I didn't know at all, you know, and that's what alcohol and other substances, dry goods allowed me to do. Um, if I'm looking back at it intellectually, right at the time or an emotionally intelligent way at the time though I was just like I can't deal and I dropped out and lost my full-time teaching job just left the kids the community the parents everybody just left them uh and couldn't really hold a job um anywhere <laughs> um I lived in the Laurel District at the time and I literally like circulated between every small business in the neighborhood at the time and I left because it all, they, I left all those jobs because they got in the way um, of my using. Um, and again, I say I'm grateful for that today. I am so grateful for that today. 
Um, and I was raised by uh, two moms, and one of my moms worked um, in the health department in San Francisco, and she gave me this card to the rehab. She's like, I know the director, call, we can get you a bed. She, like, handed me the card. And what had happened on that previous day to her doing that was I had gone to pick up my nephew from daycare. And I hadn't been drinking that day, but because of the volume that I drank and the small amount of food that I would use to soak up that alcohol, I mean, I used to do stuff like make myself throw up so I could continue drinking, you know, because I'd always pass that point, always. Um, I had this, like, fumes coming off of me, you know. I mean, now it's like when you haven't smoked in a while or you haven't drank in a while, you can smell that shit from across the room on people and now I can see oh my god I was so not clever I thought I was just like so stealth you know and not at all uh I go to pick my nephew up from daycare and the woman is not giving him to me and we're arguing back and forth blah 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 and she finally gives him to me and I'm literally like driving a mile I put him in the car we go I drop him off um and the next day, my sister-in-law tells me that she doesn't feel comfortable with me driving with him, um, picking him up anymore, or even being alone in the room with him. And I was like, what the fuck is up with her, you know? Bitch, you know? What the hell? And nobody came out and said anything to me about my drinking. Nobody. It was my other mom who gave me that card and said, call this number. And I was like, what? Okay, so obviously you guys know. You know, you know, and that's when I just felt stripped. And But I did, I felt completely open. I felt like I did when I just came into this meeting, except, except, you know, I'm comfortable in my own skin today. And I could actually feel love for myself. So it's actually a world of difference. But that sensation of feeling like open and of being like out of ideas. I had no plans anymore yeah I had a bottle at home and I had probably half an eighth and some other stuff I could use and so I did I had like one or two nights left and I used them and then I showed up at that rehab I, something just had me show up it turns out that that babysitter that my sister-in-law had hired only watched my nephew for three weeks and that she was a member of ACA adult children of alcoholics you know, and I didn't find this out until like eight, nine years later, you know, but I was like, wow, what an angel. Like if it weren't for her, who knows where I would be today or who knows how long it would be before I hit my own bottom and had my own awakening. But I honestly needed other people, you know, my higher power speaking to me through other people and just saying, yeah, really, yeah, like it's, it's, it's a wrap, honey. It's a wrap. We see you, we love you, and we want you to do something. And so I did this rehab thing. I went to my first AA meeting, and I happened to love Alcoholics Anonymous from the first meeting that I went to. I happened to sit down and hear people speaking. What I thought at that time was what I had been searching for my whole life. And I had found pieces of myself throughout my life. You know, I had many passions and and, and many capabilities and skills and everything, but they all were robbed from me by alcohol. 
You know, I gave up everything, everything to just not have to feel anymore. And it was just those, well, those decisions that I had made that I started feeling shitty about, you know, it was all the shoulds and being in a meeting gave me permission to say, yeah, I'm an alcoholic and there's hope for me. And look at all these people that are also alcoholics. I'm not alone. And that's the same way I felt coming into this meeting tonight. Like Walter, like, oh, I know Rebecca. I was like, oh, I'm known. Somebody knows me. Like, that's really all I ever wanted, you know? I wanted somebody to know me. And maybe he doesn't know me, know me well, but he knows my face. He knows my voice. He knows me from having shown up someplace for, you know, months or weeks on end. And we have a common solution together. We all have a common solution together here tonight. Um, and so I, I also, I got a sponsor right away. Um, I had, you know, a house full, I was living in a house of mirrors, you know, with these, a bunch of other crazy women like myself, you know, and if I think now that I have the, the disease that I need to be right, oh my God, I was so like insoportable. Like you could barely stand me in my first 30 days. Like it, I'm just like thankful for the people that were around me, you know, like so compassionate, so kind because I was loud, I was obnoxious. We, were, we came, like, in a mass to meetings from the rehab where we weren't allowed caffeine. And so we're, get, we're those people that were getting up 75 times during the meeting to get coffee, you know? And then, like, having all kinds of ideas. I remember going into the director's office at my rehab and just being like, yeah, this doesn't work for me, and this doesn't work for me, and this doesn't work. It's like, wow. Like, I thought I knew something about not only life, but how to stay sober, you know? Um and progressively, as I went forward, I, I really saw, like, I, I really took to, to AA and, and gave to AA what I gave to my disease, which was all of me, you know? So I jumped in reading every single conference-approved book, you know, and, and having all the service commitment and, you know, attending one meeting minimum a day. I'm talking for like my first four or five years of sobriety, like just, and telling you how to do it and you weren't going to stay sober unless you did it this way. You know, nobody punched me in the throat. Some people told me off, but nobody told me, get the fuck out of here and don't ever come back. Nobody told me that. Maybe they did behind my back, but I didn't hear it. And I probably wouldn't have heard it anyway because I felt so entitled to be here. You know, and I was like, I couldn't see that this was a part of me that I was also powerless over and that also made my life unmanageable and my relationships unmanageable, you know. Um, and I remember uh, one of the first sponsors that I had telling me, you know, Walter was sharing about all the things that, you know, that he did um, in sobriety. And I was like, I literally did everything but drink or use so if you're new it doesn't mean the end of life as you know it you get to make 
a shitload of mistakes, get all the STDs you want, you know, um, whatever, charge up your credit card, you know, get fired from your job, just don't pick up. That's all. And that's all I didn't do. That's, that's the only thing I've done successfully, really. It's like, I could say, oh, yes, I have 15 years sober. Yay, me. I haven't tried to kill myself with substances for 15 years. Woohoo! I mean, where else in the world do we get to celebrate that? You know, except for here with a bunch of other alcoholics, right? Nobody else is going to celebrate me for that. You know, all I've done is not try and kill myself. But not only that, I've also, like, because I have this fatal progressive disease, like, it's been mandatory for me to go outside of myself like I once did to disassociate. But to go outside myself to then get to know myself better through other things like Walter was mentioning, service commitments, you know, showing up for people that I don't even know. Those are like the best ones for me because I have no stories in my head about these people. I just get to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to walk through that. But I just know that I, I you know, just don't drink over it, period. And then you get to have some sort of spiritual learning experience from it, period. You know, because it's all spiritual if I want it to be. Um. I'm at this point in my life really experiencing this disease of perception uh, that, that I continue to have, you know, this disease resides in my mind. This disease of addiction resides in my mind and there's, there's no psych med. There's no, uh, you know, practice in the lineage of Buddhism that I follow that's going to relieve me of this. There's no, you know, new shoe trend or hair product or, you know, temporary wallpaper I can put or new duvet cover on my bed or wax for my car or... Thank you. Thank you, Hen. There is nothing that is going to treat this disease of perception that I have um, except for a spiritual connection. It's literally the only thing. Uh, the past few days, um, both, it seems to me, like, uh, like many of the sponsees that I'm working with and myself, I have felt this, like, really high anxiety vibration going on, you know? Um, and I felt like a lot of the need to be busy, the need to do something, this, this like story in my head, like I can't sit still. I have to be scrolling and doing things, um, uh, reading something while I'm listening to something, um, while I'm pedaling on a stationary bike, uh, just this, this incredible, this insatiable need to be distracted. Um, like I, I had a sponsor was sharing with me that they wanted to drink, you know, over the past few days. And I'm like, fuck, yeah, I get it. Like I've wanted something, especially in these past two years, you know, I've wanted to smoke again. I want to, I want to, I want to feel something different than what I'm feeling, you know, and what I keep coming back to over and over again 
is if I can just even one minute of silence and stillness and just turning my mind's eye inward, like what is this inner landscape actually like beyond the narrative that I'm telling myself? You know, what's actually happening inside of me right now? You know, oh, I'm feeling fear. Wow, there's a lot of unknowns going on right now. Or, oh, the hormones are fluctuating in this way. So it's, and I forgot to take this supplement. So they're fluctuating that way. And there's nothing more that I, as uh, a recovered alcoholic, dislike more than feeling a disagreeable feeling. And if I perceive something to be a threat or uncomfortable, my mind immediately scrambles to try and rescue me from it. You know, so don't feel sadness, Rebecca. Get angry instead. You know, don't feel any sort of grief. You know, here's some anxiety for you. So there hasn't been a greater gift for me than just getting to experience this higher power or this spirituality that Alcoholics Anonymous like dropped me back into and getting to be really creative with it. You know, it does, it's my higher power is not the one that the big book talks about that has a gender and it starts with a G, you know, it's what I need it to be. And that, That is what helps me accept my humanity. That is what helps me forgive myself over and over for ways that I used to be or ways that I am now, you know, so that I can be just that much more accommodating with you or with anybody driving down the street that I live on Um, or neighbors throwing way too much recycling in the bin. Like I have, that's just beyond, no. That, that's not a, like, no. So any little, my brain, I just know this about myself, is always looking for something, looking for something. You know, it's always just like, what are we going to, what are we going to barnacle on to now, you know? Who are we going to nail to the cross today, you know? And if I know this, then I can, I can bring some levity into it and just be like, oh, honey. It's okay, you know. Then it's more like an SNL skit up here rather than it's time to 5150 your ass, you know, which happens too, you know. So I'll just I'll end with this just by saying that my path in sobriety has been nothing like I thought it would be. Like when people say stuff like, I'm living life beyond my wildest dreams. That doesn't mean for me that it's like fucking fantastic. It just means that my perception has shifted to the point where I'm like, it is so wonderful to be freshly bathed and have hot water and indoor plumbing and to like enjoy brushing my teeth on a daily basis and to be known when I walk into a virtual room, you know, and to have food in my belly and in the refrigerator, you know, as opposed to counting down the list of things that I don't have or that I'm not, or comparing myself to somebody else. Um, 
yeah, you guys, you all make me a better person, you know, in, in this, at this crossroads, you know, where I can be vulnerable and as honest as I possibly can and authentic and not trying to impress, but just, this is what, this is what it is for me today right now. You know, this is just like Rebecca's amateur hour, Rebecca, the recovered alcoholics amateur hour, you know, cause I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I just haven't picked up a drink or a drug and I just, this has been what has taught me how to live. And so I just hang out with people that remind me of that and point me back to it. Um, so yeah, it's really not that hard. It's just this thing. So you guys are my solution. You know, I come here for power because I definitely lack it. And, um, yeah, because of these tendencies that I've been gifted with, you know? So, yeah, I'll end there because I could talk about AA, like, all night. Super, like, erotic to me. It's super exciting and not in a sexual way. It's just, like, stimulating um, because it's spiritual in nature. So I hope that um, you have a beautiful night and just know that there's many, many other meetings if, Nothing I said landed on you. It's totally okay. I don't take it personal.